Hey everyone, welcome to the Restoring Rapport podcast. My name is Seth Hensley and this is a podcast about reclaiming the place of priority relationship is providentially intended to hold in your life. You know, we live in a world where community is far too often pushed to the back burner in favor of less important things, but the good news is that it doesn't have to stay this way. As believers, we have the choice to prioritize connection in our life every day and to live face-to-face with God and people. In this show, I'll be number one, sharing research which supports the importance of relationship, number two, giving you tools to help you improve your interpersonal connections, and number three, sharing writings that I have done in the past on the importance of community. It is my sincere hope that the content presented in this podcast equips you to better serve and love others. To access my past and future articles, subscribe to my YouTube channel, or purchase a copy of my books, visit homeschoolerponderings.blogspot.com. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 36 of the Restoring Report podcast. Super excited for what we've got planned out for you guys today. I'm going to be reading and reviewing an article by Wendell Berry. For those of you who don't know who Wendell Berry is, he is actually a uh, national, a world, a national, world recognized. I think it's world recognized. I know he's a nationally recognized poet. Um, he's kind of an environmentalist uh, in the sense that he's always all, all about um, protecting. Uh, the the world in which we live and he's very family centered which is what i like about him and he's got a very unique perspective on uh, marriage on community particularly and and family so i'm going to read an article that you that he wrote to you guys today called feminism the body and the machine um it's a 13 page single space article so it's pretty massive it's going to take a while to get through so what i'm going to do is i think i'm going to Depending on how much I stop, I, I might break this up into like two or three episodes, um, some of which you might only have access to if you're a subscriber. So if you kind of listen to him throughout this this article, and if you're interested in hearing more of his work, then subscribe to my show and you will get the access to the rest of the article that I'm going to do. Uh, but it's a really good article so far. At least I've only read parts of it. You're going to get my complete first impression on, on a lot of it. Um, but when it comes to Wendelberry's work and Wendelberry's work in general, I believe he's still a professor at um, the University of Kentucky, if I'm not very much mistaken. Um, but so he's kind of a local guy. I mean, he's he's nationally recognized, but he's a local guy. Um, if you live in Kentucky, anyway. Anyway, the article is entitled Feminism, the Body and the Machine. As I've said before, I've read some parts of this article that I really stuck out to me, and I've even quoted parts of it on the uh, through the quotes that we share on our, our social media pages, but I just wanted to give you the full full weight of this article because, because it's a very well-written article. Obviously, the, the man knows what he's doing when it comes to words, but also just worldview-wise, I think it's going to be something really different than uh, you've ever heard before unless you've, uh, you're a big fan of Wendell Berry. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. <clears throat> some time ago, Harper's reprinted a, a short essay of mine in which I gave some of my reasons for refusing to buy a computer. Until that time, the vast number of people who disagree with my writings had mostly ignored them. An unusual number of people, however, neglected to ignore my insensitivity to the wonders of computer enhancement. Some of us, it seems, would be better off if we would just realize that this is already the best of all possible worlds and it is going to get even better if we will just buy the right equipment. Harper's Publishing Harper's published only five of the letters the editors received in response to my essay, and they published only negative letters. But of the 20 letters received by the Harper's editors who forwarded the copies to me, three were favorable. This I took this I look upon as extremely gratifying. If these letters may be taken as a fair sample, then one in seven of Harper's readers agreed with me. If I had guessed beforehand, I would have guessed that my supporters would have been fewer than one in a thousand. And I 
And so I suppose, after further reflection, that my surprise at the intensity of the attacks on me is mistaken. There are more of us than I thought. Maybe there is even a significant number, quote-unquote, of us. Only one of the negative letters seemed to me to have much intelligence in it. That one was from N, or I'm sorry, R. N. Neff of Arlington, Virginia, who scored a direct hit, quote, Not to be obtuse, but being willing to bear my illiterate soul for all to see... Oh, sorry. Not to be obtuse, but being willing to bear my illiterate soul for all to see. Is there indeed a work demonstrably better than Dante's, which was written on a royal standard typewriter? <laughs> Very good. So he's saying basically that in order to write great stuff there, you don't have to have a computer. You can write it on a standard typewriter or even, you know, by hand or something. Back to the article. I like this retort so well that I am tempted to count it a favorable response, raising the total to four. The rest of the negative replies, like the five published ones, were more feeling than intelligent. Some of them indeed might be fairly described as exclamatory. One of the letters, one of the letter writers described me as quote unquote a fool and quote unquote doubly a fool. But fortunately <laughs> misspelled my name, leaving me a speck of hope that I am not the Wendell Berry he was talking about. <laughs> Two others accused me of self-righteousness, by which they seem to have meant that they think they are more right than I am. And another accused me of being more concerned about my own moral purity than with any ecological effect, thereby making the sort of razor-sharp philosophical distinction that could cause a person to be an elected president. But most of my attackers deal in feelings either feminist or technological or both. These feelings expressed seem to be representative of what the state of public feeling currently permits to be felt and what the public rhetoric currently permits to be said. The feelings, that is, are similar enough from one another to be thought representative, and as representative letters, they have an interest greater than the quarrel that occasioned them. Without exception, the feminist letters accuse me of exploiting my wife, and they do not, they do not, they do not scruple to allow the most insulting implications of their indictment to fall upon my wife. They fail entirely to see that my essay does not give any support for their accusation, or if they see it, they do not care. My essay is in fact my essay in fact does not characterize my wife be beyond saying that she types my manuscripts and tells me what she thinks about them. It does not say what her motives are, how much work she does, or whether or how she is paid. Aside from saying that she is my wife and that I value her help and that she gives me and that I value her help she gives me with my work, it says nothing about our marriage. It says nothing about our economy. There is no way, then, to escape the conclusion that my wife and I are subjected in these letters to a condemnation by category. My offense is that I am a man who receives some help from his wife. My wife's offense is that she is a woman who does some work for her husband, which work, according to critics, according to her critics and mine, makes her a drudge exploited by conventional subservience. And my detractors, and my detractors have, as I say, no evidence to support any of this. Their accusation rests on syllogism of the flimsiest sort. My wife helps me in my work. Some wives who help their husbands in their work have been exploited. Therefore, my wife is exploited. <laughs> this is very good. So these people are basically what's happened so far is they're, they're accusing him of exploiting his wife and saying that she's just kind of a, a powerless little, um, person just who are, who's just yielding to, to, to male will or whatever. Um, and it's really insulting to both of them to make these sort of remarks. And he's kind of writing this in, in a retort in response to those, those letters or those uh, comments from these critics. Uh, back to the article. Let's see. Um, this, of course, outrages, 
This, of course, outrages justice to about the same extent that it insults intelligence. Any respectable system of justice exists in part as a protection of such accusations. In a just society, nobody is expected to plead guilty to a general indictment. Because in a just society, nobody can be convicted on a general indictment. What is required for a just conviction is a particular accusation that can be proved. My accusers have made no such accusation against me. That feminists or any other advocates of human liberty and dignity should resort resort to insult and in, I'm sorry. That feminists or any other advocates of human liberty and dignity should resort to insult and injustice is regrettable. It is equally regrettable that all the feminists attack on my essays implicitly deny the validity of two decent and probably necessary possibilities: marriage as a state of mutual help and the household as an economy. And I think this is where it's about to get really good. He's going to start, he's start going to start going into what marriage is and what the household economy is. And these are the things that I find super interesting, unless I'm very much mistaken. I think this is the part of the article that I remember. Marriage is what is evidently in its most popular. Marriage is what is evidently its most popular version is now on one hand, an intimate relationship involving ideally two successful careerists in the same bed. And on the other hand, a sort of private political system in which rights and interests must be constantly asserted and defended. Marriage, in other words, has now taken the form of divorce, a prolonged and impassioned negotiation as to how things may be divided. <laughs> that is a great quote right there. So he's basically saying that uh, when people think of marriage, uh, they either think of, um, you know, two careers in the same bed, or on the other hand, they think of this uh, system in which things are constantly being negotiated between two individuals as to who can live their best life and uh, further their own personal success. Um and of course, I think that second one is a nightmare uh, way of thinking about a marriage. Marriage is supposed to be so much more than uh, two people, you know, basically fighting when he, with asserting their own rights uh, and uh, fighting for their own rights against one another um, in order to consider how things should be divided and who can do this and who can do that and who can get to go pursue their dreams while the other one stays home with the kids or whatnot. Um but just that's such a sad way of thinking about marriage. And I'm glad he said it that way. He's got a touch of humor, too, which is awesome for uh, people when reading. The, he's a really wordy author. So sometimes his work can maybe get boring to some people. But I love seeing the beautiful language and especially the humor in here. Just, oh, my goodness. Cracks me up. Um, back to the article. During their understandably temporary association, the married couple will typically consume a large quantity of merchandise and a large portion of each other. The modern household is a place where the consumptive couple do their consuming. Nothing productive is done there. Such work, as is done there, is done at the expense of the resident couple or family, and to the profit of suppliers of energy of energy and household technology. For entertainment, the inmates consume television or purchase other consumable diversion, diversion elsewhere. There are, however, s still some married couples who understand themselves as belonging to their marriage, to each other, and to their children. What they have... What they have, they have in common, and so to them helping each other does not m seem merely to damage their ability to compete against each other. To them, mine is not so powerful or necessary as the pronoun ours. This sort of marriage usually has its heart, at its heart, a household that is to some extent productive. 
Hi guys, I want to take a quick break and tell you about an opportunity that you guys have as listeners to become subscribers of this podcast. Now, in order to become a sub, all you have to do is follow the subscribe link in the show notes found in the description of each episode. And when you subscribe, you'll get access to exclusive material, including additional interviews, all of my spoken word poetry pieces, all of my dramatized allegorical short stories, and even more of my article readings. Okay, so lots of content will be available to you that won't be available to anyone else. Subscribing to the show only costs five dollars a month, which is less than most people spend on their lunch at work every day. Okay, so you won't even notice it disappearing from your bank account. If you enjoy listening to the show and you're looking for an opportunity to financially support the content you care about, this is your chance. Okay, follow the link in the show notes to become a sub. Thank you so much for choosing this show to listen to. And now, without further ado, let's get back to the episode. So I just, man, that's a great thing there. He's basically saying that when you have the the collective mindset rather than the individual mindset, when you look at things as ours, when you look at yourself as a team uh, with your wife, with your husband, with your, um, with your children, that you're actually going to be a more productive household. You're going to get more things done. And, um, just aside from that point that you're going to get more things done, that's just, that's a much more, uh, cordial way of living together. That's a much better way of living together. It's, uh, mutually respectful. It's, uh, relying, practicing interdependence with one another. It's, uh, making everybody feel needed and appreciated and valued. So I just love that he pointed that out, but he's uh, specifically saying that those, those people who rely on each other, those marriages, those household economies that depend on the members, all the members, and they need each of the members, those household economies are more productive is what he's saying. Um, this sort of marriage usually has at its, oh, I've already read that. Um, let's see. Okay. Back here. Here it is. The couple that is makes itself a, around itself a household economy that involves the work of both wife and husband that gives them a measure of economic independence and self-employment a measure of freedom as well as a common ground and a common satisfaction that's awesome so he's talking about here a shared task we talked in the show about the value of a shared task when a, when a husband and wife when a family team has something that they all want to pursue together and that they can all play a part in pursuing together that's just an awesome way to make everybody satisfied every single person satisfied it's when people don't feel like they have a part when they don't feel like they have a role, when they're not passionate about something that they don't become satisfied. Um, so that's just awesome that you pointed that out. Great, great point there. Such a household economy may employ the disciplines and skills of housewifery, of carpentry, and other trades of building and maintenance, of gardening, and other branches of sub- subsistence subsistence, agriculture, and even of woodlot management and woodcutting. It may also involve cottage industry of some kind, such as a small literary enterprise. That's which is what he does. He writes books with his wife. Um, As he mentioned above, let me see here. It is obvious how much skill and industry either partner may put into such a household and what a good economic result such work may have. And yet it is a kind of work now frequently held in contempt. Men in general were first told to hold it in contempt as they departed from it for the sake of the professional salary or hourly wage. And now it is held in contempt by such feminists as those who attacked my essay. Thus farmwives who helped to run the Thus, farm wives who help to run the kind of household economy that I have described are apt to be asked by feminists and with great condescension, but what do you do? <laughs> so good, man. By this, they invariably mean that there's something better to do than make one's marriage and household, and by better, they invariably mean employment outside the home. 
outstanding way to open this this article, man. I just agree with everything he said in that article. So first he was saying that uh, first the people who despise the the economic household that he's describing are either the the men who who were um, began to hold it in contempt in favor of what they called a professional salary or the eight hour workday kind of thing where they would work for a factory and not for themselves. So they were saying um, they they could the, the kind of the idea that men are breadwinners. They go away from home, work for a separate institution, completely uh, independent from wife and family and home and um, to make money. So he's saying those people make fun of uh, homemaking. And he's saying the other side of people who make fun of homemaking are the feminists who say the exact same thing, that women should be able to uh, go and do, um, you know, whatever they want, which is which is true. But they're kind of, they kind of elevate work outside the home uh, above work in the home. Uh, and they say they kind of suggest that, um, you know, being employed uh, to a, some big business is better than um, changing diapers. Or, you know, cleaning the living room that, and, or even decorate just anything involving the home they suggest has more, less value than, you know, working for a big shot company, uh, which is totally not true. Totally not true at all. Um, in fact, I would say the second one is way, way more valuable, uh, way more meaningful than working for a big company. Anything involving children in the home is, in my opinion, going to be a far more worthy place to spend your time, honestly. Uh, and when you get to the end of your life, you will agree with me on that. And you will not agree with me. Uh, you know, you, if you want to go do the, the big, the become some famous person or make a lot of money or something, there's nothing wrong with that. But all I'm saying is that at the end of your life, uh, you will value things differently. I believe most people do that I've seen anyway. I've seen a lot of reports about, uh, when they get to the end of your life, nobody says, man, I should have spent more time at the office. Man, I should have worked more. Man, I should have made more money. Man, I should have bought that awesome, uh, Lamborghini or, uh, expensive, whatever these big, <laughs> big cars are. I don't even look at them because I'm not going to have one. Um, Man, I should have done all that. No, they're not saying that when they get to the end of their life. They're saying, man, I wish I'd have developed more time uh, with my, I wish I would have developed my marriage more. I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have uh, developed these relationships with friends more. I wish I would have uh, served uh, the community in this way or that way. Um, they're thinking very different things than uh, making a lot of money and becoming a big shot. So um, I just think that's awesome that he's pointed that out. And there is definitely a distinction between, uh, employment inside the home and employment outside the home. But I think it is very, very wrong of anyone to suggest that employment outside the home is somehow superior to making a home for yourself. I know that I am in dangerous territory, and so I had better be plain. What I have to say about marriage and household, I mean to apply to men as much as to women. I do not believe that there is anything better to do than to make one's marriage and household. Awesome. Boom. Great, great job, Wendell Berry. I love that. Stand behind that point, man. Do not yield ground on that at all. Um, that is where it's at, guys. That is where it's at. That's what the show is all about, making your marriage and household. Um, let's see. Whether one is a man or a woman. I do not believe that employment outside the home is as valuable or important or as satisfying as employment at home. Boom, I just said that. Did I not just say that? I just love this article so much uh, for either men or women. It is clear to me from my experience as a teacher, for example, that children need, an ordin need ordinary and daily association with both parents. They need to see their parents at work. They need it first to play at the work they see their parents doing, and then they need to work with their parents. Oh man, this is so good. It does not matter so much that this working together should be 
what is called quality time, but it matters a great deal that the work should have the dignity of economic value. So he said basically saying that when you involve your children in an economic process in making money in a family business or something, you're giving them a role. You're giving them something that satisfies them as individuals and, and makes them feel a bit part of something bigger, which is an awesome thing to have growing up. Back to the article. I should say too that I understand how fortunate I have been in being able to do an appreciable part of my work at home. I know that in many marriages, both husband and wife are now finding it necessary to work away from home. This issue, of course, is troubled by the question of what it is meant by necessary, <laughs> but it is true that a family living, but it is true that a family living not so long ago was ordinarily supplied by one job now, now requires two or more. Uh, that's such a good point as well. So he's basically saying that um, he knows there are some people who it is absolutely necessary financially for you to work two jobs, a man and a woman working two jobs away from home. He knows that's necessary and he's accommodating that, but he's also defining what is necessary. Are you doing that just so you can have a bigger television and an elevated social status or, a, um, you know, big, better feelings about yourself intrinsically? Or are you doing that because it really is necessary to put food on the table um, and live and live a well, well-rounded life as a family? Um and I think he's awesome to point that out here just because I think time is a much more valuable resource than money. So if you're spending all your time at an institution that honestly doesn't care about you one, you know, one straw, whether you live or die, they don't care. Um, I know that sounds heartless, but in the end, your life does not uh, impact the uh, that company's mission. You, you are a value to them as an employee, yes, but they're not they're, they're not something that you can get attached to. Whereas your family, if you're if you're spending your time with your family, that's something that has eternal value. You are shaping little souls. You are building a relationship uh, with a with someone that will last a lifetime. In the case of a marriage, you are building a relationship with a with a partner that you are so close to that you can't get close to anyone else. That has uh, awesome value. So I like that he's pointing that out. Um, but he does understand that sometimes it is necessary to work away from the home and for both people to work at in separate institutional workplaces wherever they can find a job just to make money. Um, so let's see. My interest is not to quarrel with individuals, men or women who work away from home, but rather to ask why we should consider this general working away from home to be a desirable state of things, either for people or for marriage, for our society or for our country. Man, so good. So he's basically saying there, why is that? Why are we assuming that working away from home is a desirable thing? Shouldn't parents be fighting to work uh, to see which one gets to stay at home? And, and shape the home and raise the children and impart their wisdom into the next generation. Shouldn't that be what we're fighting for instead of, uh, I, f I feel like a lot of parents today are fighting for the exact opposite. It's like who gets to uh, go pursue their dreams while the other one changes diapers. And that's so not true. Um, that's so not true. So I love that he's pointing that out. Um, that why is it that working away from the home is considered as a desirable state of things? That should not be how it is. <clears throat> If I had written in my essay that my wife worked as a typist and editor for a publisher doing the same work that she does for me, no feminist, I dare say, would have written to Harper's attacking me for exploiting her, even though, for all they knew, I might have forced her to do such work in order to keep me in gambling money. <laughs> it would have been assumed that a matter of, that uh, as a matter of course, that she had a job away from home and that she was a quote-unquote liberated woman, possessed of a dignity, dignity that no comb could have home could confer upon her. Man, he's so funny. Okay. As I have said before, I understand that one cannot construct an adequate public defense of a private life. Anything that I might say here about my marriage would immediately and rightly be suspected on the ground that it would be only my testimony. But for the sake of argument, let us suppose that whatever 
work my wife does. As a member of our marriage and household, she does both as a full economic partner and as her own boss. And let us suppose that the economy we have is adequate to our needs. Why, granted that supposition, should anyone assume that my wife would increase her freedom or dignity or satisfaction by becoming the employee of a boss who would be in turn also uh, who would who would be in turn also a corporate underling and in no sense a partner? Very good point there. Why would any woman who would refuse properly why would any woman who would refuse properly to take the marital vow of obedience on the ground, presumably, that subservience to a mere human being is beneath human dignity, then regard as liberating a job that puts her under the authority of a boss, man or woman, whose authority specifically requires and expects obedience? It is easy enough to see why women came to object to the role of blondie, a most decorative custodian of a degraded, consumptive modern household, preoccupied with clothes, shopping, gossip, and outwitted her and outwitting her husband. <laughs> but are we to assume that one may fittingly cease to be blondie by becoming Dagwood? Is the life of a corporate underling, even acknowledging that corporate underlings are well paid, an acceptable end to our quest for human dignity and worth? I would definitely say no. But some people, I don't know, but I would definitely say no for me personally. On with the article. Is it clear enough by now that one does not cease to be an underling by reaching, quote unquote, the top? Corporate life is composed of lower underlings and higher underlings. Bosses are everywhere and all the bosses are underlings. (laughs) This is invariably revealed when the time comes for accepting responsibility for something unpleasant, such as the Exxon fiasco in Prince William Sound, for which certain lower underlings are blamed, but no higher underling is responsible. The lower underlings at the top, like telephone operators, have authority and power, but no responsibility. And the oppressiveness of some of this office work defies belief. Edward Mendelssohn, in The New Republic, February 22nd, 1988, speaks out that, quote-unquote, the office worker whose computer keystrokes are monitored by the central computer in the personal office and who will be fired if the keystrokes per minute figure doesn't match the corporate quota, end quote. Mr. Mendelssohn does not say what form of drudgery this worker is being saved from. And what we what are we to say of the diversely skilled country housewife who now bores the same six holes a day, day after day, on an assembly line? What higher form of womanhood or humanity is she consenting to be evolving toward? How, I am asking, can women improve themselves by submitting to the same specialization, degradation, trivialization, and tyrannization of work that men have submitted to? And that question is made legitimate by another. How have men improved themselves by submitting to it? The answer is that men have not, and women cannot improve themselves by submitting to it. Women have complained justly about the behavior of macho men, but despite their he-man pretensions and their captivation by masculine heroes of sports, war, in the Old West, most men are now entirely accustomed to obeying and currying the favor of their bosses. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> because of this, of course, they hate their jobs. They mutter, thank God it's Friday, and pretty good for Monday. But they do as they are told. They are more compliant than most housewives have been. Their child- their characters combine feudal submissiveness their characters combine feudal submissiveness with modern helplessness. They have accepted, almost without protest, and often with consumptive relief, their dispossession of any unusable property, and with that, their loss of economic independence and their 
consequent subordination to bosses. They have submitted to the destruction of the household economy and thus of the household, to the loss of home employment and self-employment, to the disintegration of their families and communities, to the desecration and pillage of their country, and they have continued abjectedly to believe, obey, and vote for the people who have most eagerly abetted this ruin and who have most profited from it. Man, he's just really slamming the fact that uh, men have been passive in the transfer of the workplace from the home into, you know, a corporate building. He is just slamming that um, and just saying that you, we, we didn't fight at all for our transition that I've talked about before from an industrial or an agricultural society to an industrial society. He's just saying that uh, we should have fought for that and we should not have given that up so easily and that we've just rolled over and shut our belly and uh, accepted the uh, the the idea of working for a boss as necessary. These men, moreover, are helpless to do anything for themselves or anyone else without money, and so for money they do whatever they are told. They know that their ability to be use useful is precisely defined by their willingness to help somebody else's to be somebody else's tool. Is it any wonder that they talk tough and worship athletes and cowboys? Is it any wonder that some of them are violent? It is clear that women cannot justly be excluded from the daily fracas by which the industrial economy divides and spoils divides the spoils of society and nature, but their inclusion is a poor justice and no reason for applause. The, the enterprise is as devastating with women in it as it was before. There is no sign that women are exerting a civilizing influence upon it. To have an equal part in our juggernaut of national vandalism is to be a vandal. To call this vandalism liberation is to prolong and even ratify a dangerous confusion that was once principally masculine. A broader, deeper criticism is necessary. The problem is not that the exploitation of women, the problem is not just the exploitation of women by men. There is the, a greater problem is that women and men alike are consenting to an economy that exploits women and men of everything else. And that, wow, interesting. Another decent possibility my critics implicitly deny is that the work of a, is that of work as a gift. None of them support None of them suppose that my wife may be con a consulting engineer who helps me in her spare time out of the goodness of her heart. Instead, they suppose that she is a household drudge. But what appears to infuriate them the most is that their supposition that she is their supposition that she works for nothing. They assume, and this is the or orthodox assumption of the industrial economy, that the only help worth giving is not given at all, but sold. Love, friendship, neighborliness, compassion, duty, what are they? We are realists. We will be most happy to receive your check. <laughs> very, very interesting. There's, I've just never read anything like this before. This is super intriguing to me. Uh, you're getting my first reaction of it as well. I'm just going to have to stop in a few minutes. I'm on page six. Uh, it, again, I said it's a 13-page article, uh, single space. So he dives into some pretty deep topics pretty uh, thoroughly. Um, which is awesome, but it's just hard to get all of that into one podcast. I can't read quickly enough and I can't uh, capture the meaning of what I'm reading. If I read too quick, I'm unable to like uh, realize what I'm reading. So I have to slow down sometimes. I'm sure you guys are the same way. So I've gotten a lot out of it about this. I'll probably get to the end of the bottom of this page and then go ahead and take a break. Uh, let's see. And again, the, the rest of it will be available in uh, following episodes from now. Some of them may be subscriber episodes. So if you really enjoy listening to me read Wendell Berry's work, go ahead and subscribe to the show and you can get access to the other uh, fractions of the article um, that aren't available to you now. <clears throat> 
The various reductions I have been describing are fairly directly the results of the ongoing revolution of applied science known as technolo technological progress. This revolution has provided the means by which the productive and the consumptive capacities of people could be detached from the household and community and made to serve other people's purely economic ends. It has provided as well a glamour of newness, ease, and affluence that has made it seductive even to those who are suffering most from it. It is in its more recent histories, especially, this revolution has been successful in putting unheard of qualities of consumer goods and services within the reach of ordinary people. But the technical means of this popular affluence has at the same time made the possible, made possible the gatherings of the real property and real power of the country into fewer and fewer hands. Some people would like to think that this long sequence of industrial innovations has changed human life and even human nature in fundamental ways. Perhaps it has, but arguably almost always for the worse. I know that there are I know that technological progress can be defended, but I also observe that defenses are invariably quantitative, catalogs of statistics on the ownership of automobiles and television sets, for example, or on the increase of life expectancy, and I see that these statistics are always kept carefully apart from the related statistics of soil loss, pollution, social, dis social disintegration, and so, so forth. That reminds me of an article, or not an article, a... Um, documentary i watched called the social dilemmas on netflix and it talks about basically people ignoring uh well not really big tech censoring um the negative statistics about their their product uh and how it impacts disintegration um and and your your mental health and that kind of thing and they're kind of uh, kind of they they know that they've created kind of a monster and they don't want to take ownership for that so they're kind of uh, justifying it by saying all these types of things so that's just that's interesting that he said that there uh, she even said it. He even said it in relation to technology. He said that um, he, let's see. He talked about television sets, ownership of automobiles, that kind of thing. At the statistics of owning those and health has been kept separate from the loss of soil pop or the soil loss, pollution, and the social disintegration. He even mentioned all this. That's super interesting. Um, let's see. Where am I at? The voice of its own defenders, or the voice of its defenders, is not that of a responsible bookkeeper, but that of the protagonist or salesman who says who says that the net gain is more than one hundred percent, and that that the thing we have bought has perfectly replaced everything it has cost and added a great deal more. You just can't lose, quote unquote. We thus have got rich by spending just as the advertisers have told us we would, and that the best of all possible worlds is getting better every day. The statistics of life expectancy are favorites of the industrial apologists because they are perhaps the hardest to argue with. Nevertheless, this emphasis on longevity is an excellent example of the way the isolated aims of industrial mind reduce and distort human life. They also, and also the way statistics corrupt the truth. A long life has indeed always been thought desirable. Everything that is alive apparently wishes to continue to live, but until our own time, that sentence would have been qualified. Long time is desirable and everything wishes to live up to a point. Past a certain point and in certain conditions, death becomes more preferable to life. Moreover, it was generally agreed that a good life was preferable to one that was merely long and that the goodness of a life could not be determined by its length. The statisticians of longevity ignore good in both its senses. They do not ask if the prolonged life is virtuous or if it is satisfactory. In the life that is, if the life is that of a vicious criminal, or if it is inched out in a, in a veritable hell of captivity, 
captivity within the medical industry. No matter, both statistics prove that the good prove the good luck of living in our time. So he's basically saying that with the change in technology and all the things that we can do now, how we've made life quote unquote better in all these ways, he's saying that those statistics might not reflect the quality of your life though, because in the, in changing and in making all these improvements uh, through technology throughout the years, we might have lost some things that we actually needed to have a well-rounded um, good life all around. And I, I think that's a good thing to just ask yourself, you know, um, as you're living, you know, is are the whenever you make a changes or adopt something new or embrace a new technology or a new uh, practice or anything, just kind of ask, you know, yes, this is helping me doing this and this and this, but is there anything that I'm losing? Is there anything that this is uh, throwing out the window that I won't be able to get back by embracing this new, this new ideal? Um, and I think that's just an awesome question to put put to ourselves whenever we're embracing something new a practice or technology um so i hope you guys have really enjoyed this episode so far i know it's kind of wordy once again but um i I just loved reading especially that part in the beginning about his um the 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 economic household the household economy um i just loved that that was a really interesting piece of work that honestly i'd never seen anybody else do so that's why i love reading it also appreciate his his uh, interjection of humor really love that so um I, i've enjoyed doing this so far i will continue it um next week but for now i'm going to go ahead and call it because again this is a 13 page document <laughs> and again you guys will have access to probably some more of it but the other part will probably be for subscribers only so if you're interested in that go ahead and subscribe to the show also remember to follow our uh, restoring a poor platform on social media um, facebook instagram we post uh, regularly quotes there pertaining to marriage and family and some quotes that i write as well so i hope you guys have a good day i hope you guys have enjoyed this uh, blessings and we will talk to you next time Thank you.